the political side of it, and then there's the real story. There's a lot to unpack right there. Wasn't quite the interview I thought that was going to be. There's a reason for it. This will be officially my favorite podcast I've ever done. It's constantly a barrage of of so much negativity on social media. I can't even watch it. Mm. I can't, yeah. right? But I, I can watch and consume every single thing you do. And I'm wondering what compelled you to start like doing it. Like, cause one day you decided I'm going to tell a story on TikTok. And I look at your TikToks and you get like 80,000 views to a million views. I'll get a, I'll get some 3 million views every once in a while. Okay. Well, some, some are but 3 yeah. million, right? But they're compelling, right? And it's, it. they're, they're, they're not pornographic. They're not insightful in the sense that you're inciting a riot or saying negative something <laughs> about anything. They're, they're always like a, a story that someone can relate to. And I wondered, how did you decide that you were going to, like, I want to hear like how you did it. Uh, it was, it's funny. My father, who I loved very much, uh, is, he never met my daughter. And Tony, my daughter, uh, is so much like him that had he been around to see it, he would have marveled at, you know, his doppelganger. And one day I just thought, you know, what would be fun is if I could recall some of the memories I have with my own dad so that she would be able to hear them and know the man as I remembered him. And the, we did a couple of videos and she thought they were pretty good. And the two of us were in a diner having breakfast. And she had suggested just before we went out for breakfast that I should take one of these videos and put it on TikTok. So I put it on TikTok. And then while we're at breakfast, she says, hey, dad, I think you've gone viral. And I said, what are you talking about? Uh, oh, have we got like a thousand hits? She goes, dad, you're like at a 200,000 hits. You really? Know, like an hour and a half later, I think this is going to. And so the two of us were around the phone for the rest of the day watching it, you know, go over go two crazy. million and yeah. then two and a half million. And the um, first TikTok. Well, sort of. Yeah. Uh, I just remember that moment. There, there was probably two or three videos before that. But I remember that so vividly because that was the one where we were going to go track it while we were out to breakfast. Mm. And I've got a whole story about why we would go out to breakfast together. But in any case, um, what happened, I believe, with that, this, this name of that video was a postcard from 1969. I know it. Uh, yeah. I know it because when I was born, I've seen that one. Okay. Yep. I've seen go. that one. And I know, but, but tell people the story. I got, don't, don't do that. Uh, yeah. Well, so what happened was my dad and I were driving from Los Angeles to Oakland on the five back in 1969. Mm -hmm. Now, what people don't remember about that year, they look at today and they think we're divided and everything's going to hell in a handbasket and the country's lost its mind. In 1969, we were in the heavy part of the Vietnam War. Oh yeah, for sure. It was tearing the country apart. Yeah, people, and, thought, that th people thought that eventually tanks would roll and there'd be civil war. Right. Yeah. And there were Kent State, you know, shootings. Where my family's and, from. And my- uh, Born there. They'd shot Martin Luther King. They'd shot John F. Kennedy. They'd shot Robert Kennedy. Malcolm X had been shot. You know, political assassination was like a thing that yeah. you'd hear about every yeah. once in a while. Can you imagine if that were going on right now? And there was the Manson family and the Zodiac killer. And I'm telling you, for most Americans, they, my father, who had grown up in the Depression, his faith in humanity was just at its absolute low ebb. He was... He it's was kind of where I'm at right now. Oh, there you go. Yeah. He was suspicious of everyone and everything. And when yes. we were making this drive right. from LA to Oakland, he had not brought any cash with him. He had this single Chevron card. And the idea was we would hit Chevron stations on our way. And that would, you know, that's how we would get home only to hit the bottom of the grapevine. And we're about eight or nine miles South of Bakersfield. And the car loses all of its coolant. We had a 1960 Oldsmobile. And this is before cell phones. This is before they have those emergency boxes. On yeah, the people highway. don't realize there were no cell phones. <laughs> right. There were no pagers. You were. There were no emergency boxes. Yeah, you're on oh, your own. By the way, I think there's a gas station down there, Dad, <laughs> and it might be about five miles. Right, right. Exactly. exactly. I've been through that. So yeah. we're sitting there at the side of the road in a, in about June, or in a June, uh, in the California Central Valley, hot. hot as the hinges. Oh, yeah. And it's about 1130. So we haven't oh, even hit the thick baking. work of the day, right? Yeah. And my father is just shaking his head like, but you know, now what? And up comes this cowboy, must've been about 20 years old in a flatbed. And he says, hey, you fellas need some help? And my dad's like, well, uh, listen, yeah, but uh, we can't pay you. And the guy's like, well, I wasn't 
going to ask you for money. Like, we can get mm -hmm. you hooked up. We, this is back when they built a car bumper, like, like it was, had to survive an RPG. Yeah, exactly. And so we used electrical conduit to hook his truck to the front bumper of our old. pulled it. And we, and by the way, he had a tube radio in his car. So when you started, he had to wait for it to warm up before yeah. it would play. So we go on into Bakersfield and it's a Sunday. How far did he tell you? About, about nine miles. Really? Yeah. So, so were you at the, beneath the grapevine? Yeah. So that's, it was, you know, you just, the 99.5 break off yeah. is right there. So we took that and we went up and into Bakersfield. Did you take the 99 or uh, the five? Yeah. To the 99. Okay. So, got it. Yeah. Okay. So we roll into town. Now it's a Sunday, which means that the, nobody's open. Nobody. So this guy drags us to the front of this clapboard church and we wait for the mechanic to come out. And this guy comes out with a bolo tie, honest to God. And the guy says, hey, Jed, come on over here. These fellas need some help. And Jed goes, oh, okay, all right. And uh, he takes us down to his garage, unlocks the place, car goes up on the jack. And then he finds out it doesn't have the part. So now we got to go and find the guy that owns the Napa parts store down the block, which we then do in the flatbed. And he goes, hey, you know, Derek, we got to open up your place. And he's going, okay. My father's going, now hang on a minute. I don't have any money. I don't know how we're going to get this all settled. And everybody's like, no, don't worry about it. We'll work something out. Okay. Well, they get the water pump. We get down to the garage and my dad's like not having it. And he just says, listen, hang on. Everybody just slow down. I cannot pay you. All I have is this card. Uh, how are we going to get this worked out? And they're all looking at him like he's out of his mind. And the cowboy says, well, if it'd make you feel any better, <laughs> I got a bunch of watermelons. I got to get off a rail spur. And it's pretty hot work. And I was going to do it myself. But if you're here, I'll be happy to pay for the part uh, if you guys help me out. So, okay. All right. We're making progress. So, Todd, we were inside a boxcar in the middle of summer. It had to have been easily 150 degrees in there. My dad is whistling. We're sweating like pigs. But he is whistling, right? Because, ooh, okay. This isn't going to be some kind of shakedown. Just as soon as we get the fifth load of these watermelons off, uh, up comes the car running like a top. It's all good. And my dad's, you know, we're all pitted out. And my dad says, I really don't know how to thank you, fellas, for such a good turn. And we're turning to go. And the mechanic goes, oh, 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 where do you think you're going? And you could see on my father's face, I knew it was deliverance. I knew this whole thing. I'm not selling the kid if that's what this is about. Okay, and there goes, no, no, no. My wife's gonna make us all Sunday dinner. So we reckon you ought to stay here and maybe get a shower and we'll get you some clean shirts and you can make the drive, you know, in a civilized way. And my father's like, oh, okay, okay. So Todd, we sat down on a picnic table with one of those red checkered tablecloths with this guy's wife who looked like she was right out of the Bureau of you know, Swedish Tourism like mail order bride. And we were having corn on the cob from the corn right over there and fried chicken from the chicken right over there. And that was the first beer I ever had, by the way, at nine years old, they had I tapped, bet. they'd tapped a Budweiser. Yeah. And which was awful at nine, you know, you're choking it down, going, this is repulsive. Not when it's hot, but <laughs> I'd love a Budweiser. <laughs> but my father during that meal was just doing this the whole time. And I knew what that look meant which is he was disappointed in himself, like that he'd been so suspicious. Mm. And, he, and he was, you know, he was going through that whole cocktail of emotions. Yeah. Like, how do I feel about this? What does this mean? Well, so we, they gave me one of the, we got showers and they gave me one of those old cowboy shirts, you know, with the little pearl, yeah. fake pearl buttons. And I had it all rolled up to there. We're in the car on the way home after we've said our thank yous and gotten everybody's mailing addresses, you know, we're driving home. My dad didn't say maybe three words on that whole trip home. We filled up a couple more times. Didn't say boo. And we finally get home and we're, I'm heading off to bed and I've turned off the light and my dad's standing in the doorway and all I see is that silhouette of him. And he goes, hey, listen, no matter what you read in the newspapers or you see on TV, or you see in the movies, or you hear on the radio, you listen to me. That's how people really are. And about a week later, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Nostalgia and hope, for sure. It was, for me, the thing that, that I, the, 
every time I tell that story, I have a restoration in my own soul about you got to remember, you know, history isn't the last 10 minutes. It's history has this very funny way of cycling. And if you, if it feels dark to you, don't let it because you know what, here's a, here's a truth about human beings. Human beings don't change. You go back and you read Dostoevsky yeah. from 1870. Oh, sure. It's the same comedy of silliness and old men hitting on young women, you know, mm -hmm. and, and people fighting over the most ludicrous things. And uh, have you ever heard of this thing called the overview effect? It's when astronauts go into space and they look back at earth and they realize how alone we are in the cosmos sure. and how much empty space there is. And they go, we really need to be nicer to each other. It's, it's, it's something that I learned. It's funny. So I lead a company with a lot of employees. I mean, a lot to me, you know, the 615 we have. And I get a lot of like, really, this is the most important thing. <laughs> and yeah. then I'm the guy saying to them, it's not. It'll be okay. Yeah. It's like the biggest crisis in the world. That'll, you, know, you see it being sold to people, right? And I, this is something I wanted to ask you about. And that is, have you ever seen those videos where they talk about in the, the 70s, there'll be an ice age or 60s, it was an yes, ice age. Yes. And then the 70s, we're going to run out of oil. Right. And then the 80s, it was acid rain. And then, and there's always sure. this, we're being- Killer bees. Yeah. By the way, what happened to the killer bees? <laughs> yeah, what did happen to the killer bees? Exactly. By the way, that's right. <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, Nostradamus, there you go. When I was growing up, it was the killer bees too. That was one of yeah. them. They were coming up from South America. They were going to kill us yeah, all. The Africanized right? bees. Africanized. This is my favorite line from election. We all know this is the most important election ever that may change the history of the world. Like this election right. is the one. Right. But I found myself recently thinking to myself, actually, this may be the one. But is that a story we tell ourselves? I mean, because because when you look back at Ice ages and, you know, and Al Gore saying, that, you know, the polar eye caps will be melting 10 years and it's 25 years later. And, you know, there's more ice than ever before. I, is this all marketing? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, have you read that book, Black Swan? Yeah. Yeah. So the Black Swan event is- To the, be fair, I, I've read parts of it. Okay. Well, uh, that's enough probably then to get the general idea, which is its, it's great benefit, is that uh, it, it can feel like, oh, it's all BS- until that moment when things really do happen. They, what I believe that human beings underestimate about ourselves is how astonishingly creative we are, how astonishingly team-spirited we really are, how forgiving we are of one another mm -hmm. if, if given permission. And I think, I think perhaps the, the greatest disservice that we get from our media, this, this repetitive hype about disaster, which sells people's attention, you know, and gets. the thing that, that is troublesome about that is that we feel like we're, we're suckers. And as soon as you feel like you're being treated like a sucker, then you abandon your generosity towards others. And, you know, the, the notion that if you feel like I'm the only one who's paying any attention to the rules, you know, that yeah. I'm the only one, that's the fastest way to get somebody to break the rules is when they have the feeling that nobody else is following them. And the media is tremendously good at taking uh, some small disaster and, and inflating it to something large or taking some trend and blowing it way out of proportion. And in, in my view, I think the thing that they do most of all that's the great crime is acting as though people are not good. Like you, you were saying before mm. about treating people like enemies. Right. Turning people into enemies, that's ridiculous. Right. Uh, any, you've probably experienced this in your whole life, uh, in your own personal life. You'll meet somebody whom you're supposed to hate. You've been told they're not like us, only to discover, oh, for goodness sake, right. I have more in common with you than I have with the guy that was just telling me to fear you. Right. Well, it's funny. I, I don't know how to describe this because I'm sure this will not go over really well, but I grew up in HUD housing in Fullerton, California. Oh, I, yeah. Okay. I moved to Huntington Beach because my mom married a guy who adopted me to go play football. But I had to move a year early, so I moved into eighth grade. I apologize to everyone in advance if anyone gets freaked out with what I'm saying, but 
I didn't know that I knew that there was a difference between someone who's black and someone who's white. I knew the difference to someone that person was Asian, that person was Korean. I knew that. But it never dawned on me ever as a kid that that there was anything different. I just I grew up poor. I we were just broke. I mean, I didn't care if you were black or white, if we were broke. We lived in the same place, we were broke together. And I didn't learn any racism or I didn't know any racism. I mean, I maybe inherently, you know, um, I had these two friends, Smokey and Donovan, that were African-American. They took me to 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 Watts to see some of their family members. Yeah. And I looked around, I, went, I am the only white guy here. I was like maybe 10 years old. And that was the only time I think, well, I am the minority right now, right? And I'm in the middle of Watts. So it was kind of freaked me out a little bit just because I was warned. But someone had to tell me to be warned, right? And so it's eighth grade, and I'll never forget uh, Mark Prescio and Andy Strauss uh, were, were playing football or something in the, in the, you know, in the yard, and, and uh, Andy says to Mark, quit being a Jew. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? I, I'm like, what does that mean to be a, it? Andy, aren't you a Jewish? Like, I don't even know that. What the, what's the derogative of saying quit be? So my point was is that, we all learn this behavior, right? We all mm. we all learn this over time. And then the media kind of like exactly kind of hangs on it and then drives it home in a way where they basically separate. I mean, is, or am I being am I being too simplistic about it? Because up until then, there's a moment in time where I'm like, I never knew that there was anything, you know, you know, actually, I'll, I'll add to that. I, I went to work for Dean Witter and w went to work in New York. Now, if you want to understand a cultural melting pot, <laughs> yeah. all you got to do is be in New York and understand, like, you go two blocks, it's yeah. a whole different community. Yeah, for sure. New York's good that way, though. It is good that way. It's because you stand out on a street corner, and, man, it's every cross-section of everything. It's rich, it's poor, it's black, it's white. It's Muslim. So I'm just wondering your experience about what when you see what was happening today, the sort of the tribalism. But there was tribalism in 69, wasn't there? There was a lot of it. Oh, right. my Lord. Yeah. You remember busing really got... Got rolling then. Right. And people think it's different this time. But is it really different? No, it's not. It's not different. It's what's what's different, if anything, is that it is it's being run by machines now. You know, with the advent of, of algorithms. Algorithms. Exactly. In terms of delivering media? Well, you know, you can scale it when you can when right. you can automate something, it goes to scale. Right. And then everybody feels like they're perpetually under threat. And what's more, the metrics the metrics pay off. You can indeed persuade someone through rage and fear. And, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I, we all blow everything way out of proportion. We all do it. Sure. I, I was, uh, if you don't mind my telling another story that- um, I love your stories. Uh, That's there why was, you're here. When I was- uh, when That I was, is the sole reason why you're here. <laughs> when I was very early in my career in advertising, I was a good enough storyteller that they put me, unfortunately, in front of a big audience of about 300. And it was a, a dealer body for Toyota. And I got up there in front of this crowd and I just botched it. Hmm. I mean, so badly that I was certain I'd lost my job. Like I came off of this presentation and I was sure I wasn't gonna have a job in the morning. And all they were gonna talk about was, you know, okay, well, how do we tell them? Neil, but, you're fired. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that night in this hotel in Chicago, I could not sleep. And it was, I don't know, it might've been about 1.30. And I decided, oh, to hell with this. If I can't sleep anyway, I'm gonna go downstairs and get bombed. So I went down in the hope that the hotel bar was still open. And sure enough, I go down there and the lights are on and there's nobody there, but there's this Polish bartender woman standing behind the, the bar and uh, smoking a cigarette. This was back when you could smoke in bars. And people don't so realize you can smoke on airplanes. <laughs> there was a smoking section. over section. there, section over there. <laughs> Wait, you're one row up. That's the smoking that? section. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it made no sense. Yeah. So she's behind the bar and she's, she's smoking this thing. And I roll up and so I order a gin and tonic. And she sort of sizes me up through the smoke and she goes, yes, you could have something dull and un unremarkable. Or you could have the best vodka in the world. It's up to you. So I go, well, I'll have the best vodka in the world. And she goes, do you mind it's slightly illegal? What, what do you mean? She goes, there's a blade of grass in it from Poland, and this makes the customs people wet the beds. So I go, well, no, that's okay with me. She goes, okay, good. So then she reaches down below the bar, rummages around in a box, and pulls out two glasses 
and a bottle of this Zubrowka, this Polish uh, vodka. And she pours herself one and pours me one. And I mean, I don't mean like a, like that. I mean, she fills mm. these, these tumblers. So we toast. And when we're toasting, I notice she's got this tattoo on her hand, some kind uh. of little phrase in Polish. And it looked like something you'd give yourself in prison. And I said, uh, what is the, what does that mean? And she goes, 20,000 years ago, odds are good you get killed by a tiger or a bear or you know, fall through the ice, you know? Uh, but uh, <laughs> everything was tried to kill you back then. So we learned to freak out because that way we survive, right? But you know, now we have a bad meeting, we freak out. And uh, so this tells me, yeah, <laughs> there is no tiger. And you can imagine, I looked at her like, you are reading my mind. Yeah, and then I weird. said, I think you may be the greatest bartender in Chicago. And she takes a big drag off her cigarette and goes, you may applaud. <laughs> <laughs> and the best part of the story is she was not an employee of the hotel. She had just like me come down looking for booze at one in the morning. It was completely locked up. She turns the lights on, all the liquors locked up. So she found this bottle of bootleg Zubrovka below the sink. And that's what she wound up pouring. That's why, but, you know, she turned down the gin and tonic. Are you kidding? So, that's crazy. But I, but I do very much, I've internalized this, you know, there is no tiger. Mm -hmm. we, the, there's a phrase for the way that we stress ourselves out now. It's called the 40 tiger day, which is, you know, okay, so you missed the dental appointment. You know, it's not a tiger. It's not going to kill you. And yeah, maybe you got a bad piece of news about uh, what your taxes are going to be or whatever. It's not going to kill you, right? So stop elevating everything to existential dread. And I think that's where we're at right now with the algorithms that are perpetually trying to beat into you that you are under threat. Everyone hates you. And the only way to protect yourself is to cleave to your little clutch, your little group mm. and believe in them and I'd like to think that I'd like to be that woman <laughs> behind the bar going, you know, it's not going to kill you. Okay. But relax. I'm a huge believer in this phrase that is you've been said a million times, which what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, as I said earlier, I'm a huge believer in therapy. I've been seeing the same therapist every Saturday for 23 years. Even when I moved to Vegas, I see her on zoom. And yet there's not, okay. I'm sure there's a lot of people like you and I, but there's also not a lot of people like you and I that are willing to think about that, that they, they want to live in this. There is a tiger. Yeah. Yeah. It brings them a kind of perverse comfort. But is that, is that inherent in leadership that maybe people don't have the tiger like they're not no because i want to i want to tell you this story so i i spent time with pam bondi the attorney general from florida and she she's very involved in the trump campaign hmm. uh, i think she's actually the chairman of the trump trump campaign and she told me over dinner she said everyone has it wrong with this guy i know him personally todd there is no one more caring compassionate would do anything for anybody and the media has spun this so wrong about him. She says, I know him personally. I am with him when he calls people that are down on their luck and tries to help them behind the scenes. And the media has it wrong about him. But then when we see him in the media, the way it's portrayed, it's like some vicious things are said, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like, it's hard to balance all that, right? So I'm wondering, like, how, how can we be independent and have our own thoughts about this? And the only way I get to it is that it's not always never. That's a saying I've learned a long time ago. It's not always never. It's not exactly what you think it is. You have to figure out what they're trying to make you think it is. I mean, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you brought up 1969 because to me, it's completely, insanely chaotic right now. Mm especially with like woke behavior. I, I, I've been seeing recently this, this girl who played Snow White who bashed the hell out of the movie and then now people are bashing the hell out of her and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I don't want to be in that, right? I mean, who wants to be there? You know, can I, can I borrow and 
run with something you just said a minute sure. ago. It's, it is, it's, it's not, it's not never. What, what's the it's phrase? It's not always never. Okay. So here's what I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I'll tell you what I pull from it. There's something absolutely gorgeous about the idea that you have to allow for latitude and change in your own thinking. You know what I've noticed again and again, I'm, I was in the persuasion business. Mm -hmm. Our job was to persuade people. And persuasion is a lot more like jujitsu than it is like boxing. A lot of people think persuading somebody is beating them in the face until right. they submit. Right. When, no, no, it's, it's, not, it's much more gentle. It's, it's much more gentle. Let, yeah. let me pull you towards me. Yeah. And if with your own momentum. You'll figure it I, out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I have discovered from the very best persuaders that I've watched, they have this quality. They are willing to change their mind. Mm-hmm. How powerful is it yeah. when, when you're in a discussion with somebody, you are willing to change your mind if you hear something. You take on a completely different role in that conversation. Right. This is when I was watching you with Tom Simon. Okay, mm. I had to write the name down. There you go. You and Tom the Simon, FBI, the FBI guy. Yeah. And you guys were talking about crypto and he had a different opinion about mm. Bitcoin than yours. But you were very deft about how you approached that conversation. And you said something to start it, which I thought was freaking brilliant. And you went, oh, you're a lot more easygoing about that than I thought you were going to be. Right. And you gave him this compliment. Right. And the compliment had an automatic magnetism to it. Because what you were doing was you were saying, I think I'm going to enjoy this. Sure. And he was quite a gracious. And, uh, but there was another thing I want to point out for the benefit of your viewers and, and maybe even for your own benefit. There was something very masculine about that discussion mm. in the best possible way because neither of you has any lack of confidence. Mm. And because of that confidence, because you don't have any insecurity, now you can be gracious and open because you're not afraid of your ego. Mm. That is incredibly powerful to walk into a conversation with enough confidence that you're willing to change your mind. And when people sense that about you, they are a lot more willing to change their minds. Sure. I, uh, I worked for uh, a family that owned uh, In-N-Out, they still do, the Snyder oh, family, yeah. right? I was a kid and I worked at the Costa Mesa branch, right? <laughs> yeah. And I love the job at In-N-Out Burger. That's probably how I got this big, just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I ate, the, I ate it my whole life, you know, and, uh, and very devout Christian family. And Rich Snyder said the following thing. Uh, so if you ever go to an out burger, they're not ever, they never say sorry for the wait. Yeah. Ever say sorry. Yeah, they thank you. They thank you for waiting. Yeah. I tell this to every single, because I've owned a lot of restaurants in my days. Don't say you're sorry. When you say you're sorry, you're making them defensive and they feel like they need, they need to defend themselves. Like you're sorry what you did to me, right? Whereas when you say, Thank you for waiting. You're complimenting on their skills, their patience. They're, you're implying to them that it's worth the wait. You're grateful that they were patient the whole time. And you're giving them a compliment, right? It's just, it, they, they, I'm referring back to the Tom Simon thing, which is, you know, he's going to have his own view on this. And um, it, it's perfectly fine, but we don't all argue that way. You know what I mean? If you see, yeah. if you see the algorithms, they're arguing a different way. Oh, yeah. I actually saw Ben Shapiro recently um, have an argument with a lady in the audience where he tried to allow to be open to it too. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing for people to do because when they're really passionate about their position, they'll just scream it into oblivion. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. They, they are passionate about their position, but they are not confident in their position. Mm. There's a very, there's a vast difference. When a leader is confident, he can tolerate an awful lot from people without losing his temper. Right. And they have a kind of, they have a kind of noblesse oblige and that, no, that's not the wrong phrase. Okay. I just want you to, when somebody, when you can recognize that somebody's absolutely in charge, they don't have to lord it over everybody else about how great they are. Sure. What they're more likely to do is be a patron or a, or a mentor to try to draw out of somebody, maybe a little bit that might advance their career. They'll pull them aside. They won't dress them down in public. They'll say, Rick, just so you know, that might be you know interpreted with a little bit of acid. May I make the suggestion that you do this next time? And they're not apologizing for uh, for their own 
they just don't have any reason to, to feel as though uh, being gracious to somebody else is a lack of, is a loss of status. Sure. A loss of, a lack of, uh, a loss of being in charge. Or, yeah. Yeah. Do you get uh, recognized on the street? I will, I will get recognized occasionally. Yeah. It's pretty funny actually because. Do, do they wonder sweet. like, how do they know you? When first, when they say, I, or do I, they all know that flight? Everyone, so a flight attendant will do that. Uh, well, they'll they'll look at me, but then maybe that's just because. Whenever I get on an airplane, I always give them the choice of toys. Like I, mm -hmm. I give them toys. And the reason I give them little toys, like little airplanes or little dinosaurs, is so that they can give them to kids when they board the plane. Mm -hmm. And so that that's kind of gotten a reputation, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but anyway, uh, there was one business meeting I was in where we were trying to sell this guy a package of materials and God bless his office manager. She comes in in the middle of the meeting and we're making this pitch and she recognizes me and she goes, are you Neil Ford? And I go, yeah. And she comes over and gives me this enormous hug, mm -hmm. <laughs> like right in the middle of this meeting. And I'm like, she goes, and she turns to her boss and she goes, this guy's awesome. That's cool. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Perfect timing. So it's, it's not common, but everyone's It, it happened to me one time. I was in, in Newport Beach, and I recognized someone coming out of Nobu. She was a, she's a TikToker, and she does her hair all the time. And apparently she was there for a hair meeting with a company that made hairspray. Oh. And I'm like, they think I'm a plant. I'm like, oh, my God, I know you. And then I'm taking a picture with her and later on. They're like, they, and they were like Asian, I think. And they're like, they think that you're a plant. I'm like, I know. And so we're still friends to this day. And she actually got her on my podcast. Nice. Um, I get a couple. I get... I have, it's probably overly inflated, but I, I have a lot of people who follow me and then I have a few haters. And that's generally because they bought a stock that I run a company oh, of, yeah. it goes down. If it goes up, it's their idea and they're super right. smart. And if it goes down, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a scumbag. Of course. But I noticed that, and I wanted to ask you this question about, and I don't know if you've experienced this. Have you ever noticed that when people, I say this to my therapist too, because my therapist is not a fan of Donald Trump. I said, but if you met Donald Trump in that moment, he's still Donald Trump, right? So I, I have met people that I know want to hate me, but in person, they can't do it. They're really powerful behind the keyboard. Yeah. There are keyboard warriors downstairs in the basement. But when they meet me in events, so I go to events and people walk up to me all the time and say, can I take a picture with you? I think to myself, no haters come up to me and said, I hate your guts. I never want to talk to you, and I, I don't know why you're here. So I'm asking you, like, is, from the human experience, do you think anyone that hates you is ever mean to you when they meet you or, or wants to say they don't like you? I, you know, let's, let's think about somebody that has a disagreement with you because sure. let's just presume that it's because a stock went down. Right. As though, as though the stock market is <laughs> a guarantee. Okay. They meet you in person. They realize, oh, my God, it's an actual human being. Right. Oh, he's, he's an actual human being filled with background and history and, and a loves and dislikes. And, yeah, yeah. and, and he's comes from a family and probably has a mother and all of that right, stuff. Right. And when they see you physically, it suddenly occurs to them, oh, it's a person with feelings and impulses and chances are he's trying to do right by people. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the reason I brought you that Batman car is it strikes me that you're in a position to do a lot of good for people. Mm. And that, in a way, it's sort of my little way of saying to you, you know, always be thinking about like, what, what, who could I save today? Or who could I help, help today? today? Yeah. yeah. I and, think about that a lot, actually. And, and my belief is that you carry that vibration around with you, even if only by intention. Oh, I, I'll tell you one thing for sure. I definitely do. I definitely measured things differently now. And that is, I measure things by, it, it, listen, we're a public company. I get where people are going to wonder why I say it this way, but I 1 billion percent believe that companies don't exist without people. Whereas you're, you're taught growing up in business school, you're taught, you know, the shareholders are all that matters. You got whatever you're going to do, you're right. going to do for the shareholders. Right. I'm saying, well, Chicago school. Yeah. Right. There's not going to be anybody if you don't have the people here. Right. So as you heard me earlier say, it's really hard to get fired by me. <laughs> right. You have to yeah. want to get fired by me. Well, and imagine the feeling about the, in your team when they know that about you. Mm -hmm. Some people, I'm sure, eventually will react like, oh, I can do anything I want. But, yeah, but what can, most uh, people once in, a, once in a while, though, there's a public lynching. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. But what most people are going to do is they're going to go, 
I really owe him my best effort. Sure. Because he's going to give me the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. So I can't, I can't very well disappoint Todd. What does that make me if I disappoint him? You know, like imagine what a douche I have to be to make Todd upset with me. So uh, by the way, you know, coming from the creative world, I will tell you that there's a principle that we all learn sooner or later. And it is this, an environment of trust is where people come up with their most creative ideas. For sure. If you put them in a position of competition with one another, I mean, in a day-to-day Hunger Games style, there's only one winner here. I guarantee you they've lost 15 points of IQ because all they're thinking about is the hierarchy and ways to stab each other in the back. And I need them 100% dedicated exclusively to making an idea as good as it can be. And to do that, you have to make people feel like they're in a supportive environment where the boss is going to be looking out for them, trying to cultivate them. And guess what? It's the same in all companies. I was thinking about string theory, and I'll tell you why. You seem like a little bit of a philosopher, which I love that topic. It's like really one of my favorite topics in college. Actually, probably logic and critical thinking was like really one of my favorite classes. Mm -hmm. People that were with me like, this class is terrible. It's so difficult, philosophy. You, apparently, you had to have like a mathematics background. I, yeah, I was symbolic te- logic. Yeah, I'm and- terrible at mathematics, but I was not. I'm not terrible at logic and critical thinking. And so I see this thing in the '30s. Your dad parked cars at MGM lot, and I am a huge admirer of a guy who I run in parallel universes with. There's a couple in my life. One of them was Carl Icahn. Well, another the one of the ones that probably the most important one uh, is Kirk Kerkorian, and Kirk Kerkorian ended up owning the MGM studios about three times. I think it was three times before it finally got sold to somebody else, and then he passed away, etc. Um, and so, how am I connecting this to string theory? I'm just curious as to what you think about that theory of of of, of string theory, because when you when you are able to capture uh, what, what concerns me is the sort of ignorance that's happening today when people don't realize what happened in 69. They all think it's different this time, yeah. right? But it's never different this time, even in the stock market, right? She was here, Christy, when I was like beaten to death over people I beat about being short AMC and the and the apes were going to keep it and it was at $40. I'm like, the it's not worth $40 billion for these uh, these uh, these uh Theaters, they're just, it's, they're heavily in debt. Now the stock's selling $2, right? And I was short Peloton. That was a whole nother thing where I'm like, guys, it's not worth $121 a share. You, yeah. Everyone in the world has to buy a bike. Market, market fundamentals, there's yeah, a reason. There's a reason for it, right? right. And it's, it's, not, it's not ever different this time. And then the pandemic happens, right? Where, hmm. where I think to myself, well, well, this actually happened before. 1919, yeah. right? Whenever that was. And we've had these black swan type of things where it, it it changes the culture, but they're just different stories over a long, long period of time. And so then I discovered string theory. I think to myself, is that possible? I mean, is it possible with you being a philosopher a little bit? Because you, you, in order to tell stories, you are a philosopher. You are a person that gets the significance of things happening, right? Like a guy being nice enough to say, help me unload these watermelons, mm. right? There has to be some connection. Is it the randomness of your father who's not happy with what is going on at the time and that gets a moment of when people are nice to people? Yeah, imagine if, if I had said to my dad that morning, hey, by the way, Pop, here's how the day's gonna go. We're gonna be stranded at the side of the road in a situation where we have to trust absolutely a perfect stranger who's gonna bail us out for no money at all, they're going to have, they're going to put us to work in a 160 degree boxcar for the better part of the afternoon. And then at the end of all this, your faith in humanity is going to be completely restored. Mm. He wouldn't be able to piece together how that could possibly happen. Sure. Now there's the essential part of the story. The reason I so enjoy the story is that there was a, there was a kind of circular, um, joy to this, which is my father who grew up in the depression, grew up in circumstances where no matter how desperate it got, people leaned on each other. Mm. People could depend on each other. And even in the, in the midst of an economic meltdown, 
people behaved like human beings. And in fact, if you go back to um, America in the 30s and the 40s, yeah, not everybody shared the same opinions about things, but people could really depend on one another and neighbors were good to each other. Well, when you think about uh, him with that background, hard scrabble, and you know what his favorite thing he used to tell me when I was getting out of college was, hey, remember, there's no law of the universe that says you have to make it. You know, make smart decisions. And that same guy he, in the 60s, he was like, no, this is different. Everything's going to hell. Americans don't trust each other anymore. Um, I'm not even sure if, you know, we're going to survive this event, you know, between nuclear Armageddon and, and civil war. Nixon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. 72 yeah. was like so, yeah, Watergate. Yeah. So I mean, everything was cooking and <laughs> yeah. boiling like a pot. Exactly. But I, I, I equate today's, uh, I don't know what to make of San Francisco. Mm. So yeah. if, if things are not different this time, they're the same. What do you make of San Francisco? What do you make of, of groups of people getting together? Now, by the way, Jesse James used to do this. A group of his gang used to rob a train, right? What do you think of groups of uh, people getting together and all 80 people going into a Nordstrom's and robbing it all together? Yeah, you know, to me, it's... I, I had a friend once who used to tell me this. He'd say... A machine does exactly what it's designed to do. So if the transmission falls out of this car, it was designed for the transmission to fall out under certain circumstances. It's not as though that's a failure. That's what you designed that car to do. If sure. the tail pulls off an airplane, same thing. You built it to fail at a certain number of Gs. Mm -hmm. When a system produces this as an outcome, it's doing what it was designed to do. It was designed to fail. When we reach this kind of status, I don't think we give ourselves enough permission to redesign the system. You know, Jefferson is very, very famous for having said, this is a living document, our constitution. It is intended for the living. No past generation should imprison a future generation to operate under the same instructions. You should have the flexibility to change things as they need changing. And I, I think how I wish I could repeat this uh, uh, with a megaphone so people will recognize if you are confronting this clearly, this is a bad situation between homelessness and this shouldn't be happening in a city that's so incredibly prosperous. And, and, and so expensive to live in and what's so right. beautiful. So and is there no money? Well, you know, in other words, really, this is the time to disassemble the engine and inspect where the failures are right. and be willing to build a new engine. So... I, I take no political stake except to say that if you're disappointed in your political leaders, if you're disappointed in your politics, that means the system needs redo, redoing. Yeah, well, there's a saying about you get the, you get the people you deserve. You deserve. Right. You get the leaders you deserve. Right. If you want, I mean, I would argue if you want everything to be for free, you're going to get people that are going to give you stuff for free, which is going to lead to a problem, right? I mean, 100%. There's a, there is a, History is replete with examples of what can happen if you're not careful. And the again and again, what it teaches us is the disasters befall us because somebody hates somebody else. And when they inflame our hatreds, when they make us fear each other, mm -hmm. we are we are subject to making bad choices. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what Hitler did about the Jews, right? He made them be the they were the problem and you need to hate them. Yeah. Right. And you need to be against them because they're the problem. And only I can protect you from And this. only I can fix it. Yeah. yeah. You got to give me un unlimited powers to oh, fix it. Oh boy. Yeah. And then there we go. And then you go down uh, the rabbit hole. It's pretty but crazy. You were, you were mentioning string theory before. And uh, I find energy vibration and intention incredibly interesting. I have, I have experienced this in such a biblical way that for me, uh, it is scary. My, my, Talk about my, that. I, it's hard. I, I, my wife would tell you, she'd be like, you have something weird going on in your life. Like it just, I don't know how to ha explain it. It's, um, it is just like, I think about it and then all of a sudden it appears. 
And it's not think about it. My therapist says, no, you've taken action. Absolutely, I have. Um, but I've, I've, I've been with some people, some leaders in, this, in the free world, that if you would have told me that I'd be with them and they'd be hanging out with me and we'd get a hamburger together, I'd, I'd be like, what is going on in the universe that I'm, it is completely bizarro Seinfeld. I, I literally cannot believe it. I, and, uh, and it's, it's almost like it's accelerating. Even when I got you on the show, I know that sounds trivial. Like, it's like, here's a guy I like to watch. Uh, I watch, I, I come home from at night and I watch your stuff. Cause I think uh, it's a good story. It reminds me of like a better way of thinking that there are things out there that are, I mean, there, you have lots of stories. I really encourage everyone uh, that, that to, to watch them. Everyone doesn't matter who your political persuasion doesn't matter who you are, black, white, Hispanic, it doesn't who you are, watch the stories. But then of course I relate, relay myself that not everyone thinks logic and critical. They don't, they, they don't all think about the nostalgia part of, mm -hmm. of the world. They think about where they are this minute. I'd like everyone to think about that, you know? Anyway, so, so even getting you on the show, it, it's it's changed because I've empowered someone that works for me, and I say, hey, listen, this is kind of the thing I want to do, and I'll give you a name occasionally, and and she prides herself on making it happen, and then it just happens, and then that leads to other things happening. It's a crazy dynamic, but but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to other weird things, like I'll be pondering doing something, and I won't know how to do it. And then I'll be invited to a dinner and I'll meet a new person there. And it turns out that they're an expert in that thing I wanted. And I'm like, how the hell is that possible? Well, you're, but what you're noticing it is it, it is possible. That these are, it is happening frequently enough that it is providing you with the evidence that there's some veracity to that vibrational energy has a, oh, has a gravitational no pull. No question. So, I mean, so much so, by the way, that I tell my wife all the time and people I'm around, who, who even criticize themselves. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. You do not talk to yourself yeah. that way. Do not say that about 100%. yourself. 100%. I, I, uh, I was recently with a, a friend of mine. Um, she's a wonderful girl. And she had some very, a very terrible personal experience. And her description of herself, she used the word whore. And I said to her, what the fuck are oh, you doing? Man. Like, did you just say that about yourself to yeah, me? Yeah. She goes, well, I was during that time. I said, no, you were absolutely were not. Yeah. I, would you say the same thing about a guy? Would you say that he was doing this? It, it, was, it was so disturbing and uh, that, that she said it. I said to her, like, you've got to understand that that resonates somewhere in your brain. Like, you cannot say yeah. that about yourself. Yeah. If you made some poor choices, you made poor choices. That doesn't make you this terrible word, which has... You know, and then I said, let's look up the definition of what one what one is. Let's mm -hmm. are you were you hired? Were you paid by anybody? So you're not inherently, you don't even meet the definition of that word. So don't use it on yourself, right? But I, I that, that may be a bad example or a mediocre example, but I see it all the time about people that completely bash themselves or what. And most of the time, I, I've most of the time that and of course I don't have a scientific uh pool size. A, a proper sample size to know this, but I've always found the, that the people that are the most down about themselves either won't share or don't know where they want to go. Oh, hmm. if they know they want to where they're going to go, they may get down, but they're not down about themselves. They hmm. may be down; uh, they're bummed about a situation, but they know where they want to go, and they generally have an idea what they want to do. But the ones that don't are lost. There's a. Let's go back to your. Uh your In-N-Out Burger mm -hmm. thing about Rich how Schneider. they don't apologize. Mm -hmm. They thank, thank you them, for right. being patient and it pays the person a compliment and it, and it reinforces their patience. They think, oh yes, somebody, somebody noticed that about me. Yes, right. I am a patient person. Okay. What they're doing is they're sending a vibration of gratitude sure. to the person and they're getting it back. Right. And what I've noticed about myself is that as I have increasingly gone into the world looking for good things to share with people, what do you think happens? You find good things. Good things start coming at me. Sure. And in the most delightful ways, sure. Todd, just the most delightful ways. And something else is because I'm looking for it, I practically have this expression on my face. Yeah. You know, I'll walk into Starbucks and I am just looking for somebody to compliment or help 
or, or surprise or treat. I was doing this little cartoon on, for the benefit of the barista, you know, who was hustling behind the thing. And it had this little cartoon of her hustling around. And it said, you know, uh, could you possibly get more awesome, you know, a happy customer? And I just left that before I went. Didn't even wait for a reaction. Because I knew what the reaction would be, which mm -hmm. is a surprise. And they were enjoying themselves. And they were going to really love the fact that somebody had noticed that, that they were it. hustling. Right. I walk out without seeing the reaction, without really knowing, but knowing. And now I, I'm the one. I'm the big winner. Sure. Right? right? Well, the benefit of, in your case, where you're going, I'm meeting these people. Who knew this was going to happen? The fact that you're meeting them mm. is very much you sending out a, you're looking for it. It wouldn't come to you if you weren't looking for it. And mm. I mean, emotionally, vibrationally, I can see that. energy. I, mean, I can see that. And, and one of the reasons I asked you to be at the show is because in my head right now, I'm thinking to myself, no one tells a story the way you tell a story. Your stories will be great, something great for them to learn and learn about you there, right? And your ability to coach people, your ability to help CEOs, entrepreneurs that need maybe to be able to tell the story better. Tell us about your thoughts of acts of kindness. Is that kind of the Starbucks story a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. It's uh, what I find is that when you start noticing, the first thing that anybody will tell you on any given day is some awful thing that happened to them. Like somebody cut them off in traffic mm. or, or a customer was rude to a customer service person. And here's the problem is of all the things that happened to that person that day, there were probably 60 nice things that people did spoiled by one act of selfishness or rudeness. And mm. the thing is that I have only recently discovered, and I really wish I'd learned this in my 20s, is that if you ever see somebody getting abused by a customer, or you can tell that the customer service person, whether it's in an airport or in a restaurant or at the desk at the health club, if they're having a bad day, you can wipe that slate clean just through some particular kindness of yours. Mm -hmm. So the story that I actually told, which you may have seen on TikTok, was that I was in an airport and it was on one of these days with a lot of flight cancellations and delays. And so naturally, people that are kind of ignorant about how air travel works, they, they're taking it out on the people behind the counter as though right. they have a, a switch a that yeah. they could throw, you know, to make the weather better. Yeah. And they were just going after this gal. And I could tell from the look on her face that she was just about done with the human race. And so when we got up to the counter, my friend Marcus, we're checking our bags. He pulls this little troll doll out of his pocket and he goes, Bjarki saw the whole thing. And all these trolls know each other. Okay, so this gal behind the counter is going, what the hell? He goes, all the trolls know each other. And if you feed him before dark, those people will be in huge trouble because the trolls are going to fuck them up. <laughs> so, so she's like, okay. And then he pulls this bag of M&Ms out and goes, feed them this. You know, he loved, this is his favorite. So what has happened in the mind of this person behind the counter is she has completely forgotten yeah. about these D-bags. All she's focused on now is this oddball in front of her trying to cheer her up. Sure. So if you look at the vote, if she were going to vote, are people scum or are people all right? She'd go, you know what? People are all right. So we win. Just because he was there nice. to wipe the slate clean. And I am now on the war path for that. If I ever see somebody getting abused, Home Depot, wherever it is, I go up to them immediately and say, hey, just so you know, you know, it's just one person out of a 8 billion. All right. Most of us are okay. I don't think the founding fathers probably thought that there'd be social media. <laughs> I think you're right. right. Although they had their version, the pamphlet. They did, didn't they? <laughs> ben Franklin used to crank out all that stuff. He right? did. Yeah. Get you. You're yeah. a big student of history. I, it's my favorite topic. The Junto that yeah, you had I'll in Philly. You, I'll tell you a funny story about where I went to high school. I was so into student history, I stood in the U.S. government, that I was a teacher's aide as a junior. And as a senior, Mr. Jorgensen knew me so well that I taught his class. Holy mackerel. Yeah, so I actually would teach the class. I got a book for you. What is it? Have you read The March? I think it's by E.L. Doctorow. I've not. It's fiction, but it is about Sherman's march from Atlanta to Savannah. There you go. That is a great read. When people get support and know somebody cares about them. And uh, I have actually a terrific story about that if we have time for one more. Sure, we do. Okay, so my little girl and I were at a New Jersey Jackals minor league game. And I happen to love minor league baseball because 
you know, every pop fly is an adventure. Sure. It's not like the majors. And you're only eight feet from the action and parking is a dollar. Yeah. So when we were at this game, the, the players, the Jackals players, they didn't have names on their jerseys because they were going to probably need those jerseys next week yeah. for the next guy that comes rolling in in double A. And my daughter says, hey, dad, who's number 10? This young guy in the on deck circle. And I look up in this mimeographed program. Oh, that's Sanchez. And she's all of about six and a half years old. She goes running down to the third base fence and she yells to this guy, hey, Sanchez. And he turns around and she goes, you can do it. And so he gets this look on his face, okay? And he gets in there and I swear to you, Todd, first pitch hanging curve and he just lights it up and it's gone. And I mean, out of the stadium. And he is rounding second on his way to third and he sees my little girl and he goes like this, like that. And she goes, ah! you know, it's just one of these rebel yells that sure. you could hear in Bergen County. Okay, so naturally, a couple more kids come running down to the third baseline and then a couple more and they start calling out the players' names and they're yelling to their parents, who's number 23? And, I, and the parents are coming down with a little list and they're hitting and they're, they're hitting triples. And they're cranking. And they're stealing bases without the signs. They're sure. just going. Yeah. And next thing you know, it's tied. And this is the ninth. And they were getting their brains beat in. It was like they were down eight or nine runs. And they were being stomped by this league powerhouse. But now they're lit up. And so they've come around the order. And Sanchez is up again. Oh, wow. And this other team, which really is, it's a, you know, they're, they're a big team. Mm -hmm. I think they were... I don't think they were a Yankees farm team, but they might've met a Mets farm team. Mm. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> they bring in this big unit of a reliever who's throwing high heat. And he steps in there and he is just, he's hurling it at Sanchez's head and he's brushing him back and Sanchez is fouling off pitch after pitch. And you can just see it on his face. He knows he's out of his depth. Like he's- Sanchez does. Sanchez is out of his depth. If he, if he gets any wood on the ball, that'll be a miracle. And he takes a step back. Now he's a lefty, so he can see the third baseline. And my little girl is up there and she goes, and he fucking lit up another one. And I mean, it went so far, they found it in a backyard pool filter, like two blocks away. And he's rounding second again. And every kid in the stands mobs the field and it's bedlam and chaos of the best type. And they're giving out free hot dogs and the mascot's taking his head off because he wants to see everything. And they pose for a big team photo with the kids in it. No way, really? Now, yeah, it was fantastic. And I my, bet it was. my little girl was right next to Sanchez, right? And she's going like this, you know? And so the manager who's standing next to me, who's got like a toddler on his leg, he turns to me and he goes, you know, that kid has never hit a home run in all the time he's been on this team. And now he's hit two in one tonight. Game. So I got to ask you, is she coming back tomorrow? <laughs> exactly. Well, Cheering she, works. Does your daughter remember that game? Shoot, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, mm -hmm. speaking of which, that to me was the great lesson, actually, which is this. I've seen some brilliant games played by the best players money can buy. You probably have to, sure. just the best stadiums. But there's just nothing there for me at Yankee Stadium or Dodger Stadium if a couple of kids yelling from the third baseline just don't have any effect. That's why I have such a tremendous love for minor league baseball, is it matters that what, you're what there. What happened to Sanchez? I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, I, I can tell you that the what he gave my daughter was a lifelong love of the game. Mm. That was his gift, was not the home runs. It yeah, was the, I could see that. I, that's a great story. Yeah, I'm transfixed with this. Um, I'm transfixed with string theory. It's, you know, I, I, you don't ever know what's really true or not, but I'm transfixed with the idea that... Uh, you know, that whole, the philosophy of you said earlier, like you wish you'd have known it in your twenties. Yeah. 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 That's what you, when you're sending out an energy of a certain type, it just kind of automatically gets reflected back to you. Sure. And, and I don't mean it in a, I don't mean it in a, in an ethereal sort of ambiguous way. I mean, there's physics there 
about a pleasant smile and an attractive personality. There's no question about that. Uh, I'm bummed that we got to call it for now. I'm sure we're going to do this again. I, I, I sure I, hope I'm so. I'm really looking forward to you being at the conference. Um, everyone, Neil, thank you so much. Uh, thanks to Christy and Brett and Nick uh, and Skyla. Neil, I'm glad that Christy got you here. Me too. Um, we'll do it again, fun. man. We'll do it yeah. again. Thanks, man. I hope so. No, I'm going to explain to you real quick. But don't be rolling yet.